About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, one feature of the ministry of our Lord that's taken into account by virtually everybody who uh, reads any of the Gospels or studies or anything that's uh, written about the ministry of our Lord is his opposition. Uh, Each of the four Gospels has the antagonism uh, that Jesus has endured and the enmity and the the hostility against Jesus' ministry as a key feature of his ministry. Uh, Despite him being uh, a miracle worker, uh, despite him being a healer, Despite him being a teacher of the word of God whose main message was about the kingdom of God, he had opposition working right alongside him for about three years or so during his earthly ministry. And although he faced opposition in some form or another from those who took some sort of political seat or maybe it was some opposition that he's drawn from a couple of people here and there, we know that his greatest earthly enemies came from those of the religious class. That's because while the religious class was by and large uh, focused upon the externalities of religion as an institution to be obeyed, uh, rather than we could call it the internalities of embodying what that religion epitomized. In other words, uh, the religious class loved seeing people do the right things. Okay, that's what uh, the religious class loved seeing. They want you just to do the right things. And as long as you're doing the right thing, whatever that is, it's really mandated and dictated and enforced by them. Uh, Whatever goes on in your heart doesn't really matter to them, just as long as you're doing the right things. But Jesus focused upon motives. That's the big difference between Jesus and the religious class. Motives aren't as easily controllable as our actions. Actions can make it look like someone loves God, but motives are ultimately going to determine if they do. Uh, One theologian said to me many years ago that you got to keep in mind that Jesus was crucified uh, by what many people would contest— are nice, uh, charitable, and religious people. He said, church-going people, although he 
um, had to clear up his words later. But the religious opposition against Jesus has about 95% of all the externals. They had their buildings. Uh, they had uh, a lot of their money. Uh, they had their scholars. They had their experts. They had their schools to uh, keep their whole class kind of going and to perpetuate their activity. And for all intents and purposes, if we were transported from 2023 all the way back to uh, the early first century, we would have been told that the religious class that their ministry is the only legitimate way in which God is properly worshipped. We would be told also that they are the exclusive representatives of God to the world, and we need to listen to them and obey everything that they say. Otherwise, we're out of God's favor, and now it's because of us. If we don't listen to everything that they say, it's because of us that the Gentiles are now over us. The problem with all of this is that it's a sham. Uh, the problem with all of this is it's uh, like the Wizard of Oz before you uh, pull back the curtain. It's all a sham, every bit of it. And Jesus is exposing this. He's exposing this in the Gospel of John uh, by his signs and here uh, by his teaching. And more than that, uh, he's confronting the religious elite He's showing that his confrontation of the religious elite is necessary and his confrontation of the religious elite is good because God isn't merely concerned with externals at the expense of whatever is motivating it uh, behind the externals. And that uh, lands us into our passage. We're going to be looking at this uh, passage this evening with this as our theme statement uh, that's printed in your bulletin. In the middle of the Feast of Booths, Jesus powerfully confronts the religious elite and sets himself out as the real representative of God to the world. We're going to be looking at this passage with these uh, three points in mind. Jesus' proficiency in verses 14 and 15, Jesus' authority, verses 16 through 20, and Jesus' consistency in verses 21 through 24. Uh, Starting off with Jesus' proficiency, we look at verse 14, come to this passage where it says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. Uh, The Feast of Booths is something that was mentioned in uh, verse 2. We'll say a lot more about it as we go on. If you remember in our last sermon, Jesus was told by his brothers, you remember his conversation with with his brothers, he was told uh, by his brothers that he should go up to the feast in public, uh, maybe in hopes that uh, he could do some miracles, Uh, and kind of show himself to the world, perhaps do some miracles uh, in order to gain back some of his uh, followers who no longer followed him in chapter 6, gain back that fame by doing some miracles in the heart of Judaism. If you just stand on a pedestal and uh, conduct your healing or miraculous ministry uh, publicly, then you're going to get some fame, right? You remember that. And Jesus told him that he wouldn't be coming up with them at that time at the feast, Now, the feast lasted eight days in total, and so as the Bible says uh, that this is the middle of the feast, this is most uh, likely, because it's an eight-day long feast, it's probably the fourth day uh, of the feast, which means that everyone who was planning on being there, even the latecomers, uh, was there already. Now, the Feast of Booths celebrated God's provision to the people of Israel 
in the wilderness. And so one of the ways in which they celebrate the Feast of Booths is that they were supposed to live in uh, temporary houses, temporary booths. That's one of the reasons why it's called the Feast of Booths. Uh, These booths were uh, covered in palm branches, uh, greenery, and uh, vegetation. They were supposed to live in in them or inhabit them in some form or fashion for eight days. In the middle of the feast, it was common for people to go up into the temple and receive uh, teaching from some of the rabbis. And so Jesus now takes, he sits down, he takes his position as a rabbi. He's called a rabbi in chapter uh, 1. And so he begins to teach. But now 15, verse 15, creates really the drama of the passage. A drama that, by the way, continues all the way to about 30, verse 36 in the chapter. It says that the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Uh, interesting question indeed. So they marvel at a couple of things. Firstly, that for, for, for Jesus is in public. He's in public. He was present in public. Remember, his brothers uh, wanted him to do a miracle in public, um, but now we see that he's teaching in public. Secondly, uh, they're, they're astounded. They marvel that he's, he's teaching, right? So not only is he teaching in public, but he's teaching in public. Not only is he teaching, uh, but he's showing that his level of expertise in his teaching is adequate enough to compete with that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, you might see a footnote in your Bibles uh, that says that the, it, it translates the, uh, the, the question literally as, how is it that this man has learned his letters, or something to that effect? Now, in my mind, that can mean a few different things. What does it mean to learn your letters? It could mean either that he knows how to interpret the Old Testament like the scholars of his day did. Uh, It could mean that he can quote from and evaluate the scholars of his day uh, and in those days gone past. Uh, Maybe it's the case that he's expounding upon the Old Testament, uh, the scriptures, with clarity and with comprehension. Maybe it's something else. The point is that they're asking how he got his education when he never attended our institutions. Wait a minute, he's teaching. He, he hadn't gone to our schools. He didn't get approved by our scholars. He, he, didn't, he didn't get, in our modern-day parlance, he didn't get ordained by us. He didn't get qualified in our credentialing body. So how did he arrive at such intelligence without going through us first? I want you to think about the question here. Because what this question assumes... What they're asking is really an admission of something a lot more sinister than the question itself. It suggests to me that they think of themselves as the sole gatekeepers of the things of God. They assume that they have a position uh, that privileges them into a sense of entitlement and infallibility, that their position, uh, and really their position alone, merits the honor and it merits the obedience of God and man. And just as a point of application, we pray for our leaders, pray against this for our leaders uh, regularly, brothers and sisters. It's the natural temptation for those in religious leadership that we lift ourselves and inflate ourselves above and beyond our actual office. So as a note of application, uh, this is something that you can always keep in 
your prayers with regard to anybody who has any sort of religious leadership. Brothers and sisters, no Christian has ever filled out uh, the full nature, the full duties of the office that they're called to. No Christian has ever done that. The office of member. No, no, no Christian, no member of any church anywhere has ever filled out that entirety of that office. Uh, no deacon has ever done this. No elder has ever done this. No pastor has ever filled out the entirety of that office. The office is always greater than the person who holds it, except for the Lord Jesus, except for the Lord Jesus. So this question really kind of causes us to pray against this uh, train of thought for our leaders. But this question also says something about Jesus. Uh, It says something about his proficiency, that his proficiency is enough to stun the scholars in his day, which is to say that his proficiency challenges the ones who went through those institutions. And now we know why uh, he stands as a challenge uh, against the religious elite, right? We, We know very clearly why he stands as a challenge to the religious elite, Uh, Because he is the embodiment of all the promises of God. He is himself the embodiment of every promise that God has ever given. This question tells me again that he's filling out the substance of the Old Testament. But they don't want him to. They don't want him to. He can teach with such knowledge without training and without the, the training in the rabbinical institutions. Why? Because John 1 verse 1, he is the word of God incarnate. (laughs) That's why. Uh, So his knowledge of the scriptures uh, takes on an entirely different character in his teaching. That his knowledge of the Old Testament, that his knowledge of the scriptures is akin to his knowledge of himself. It is personal to him. It is most natural to, uh, to, to him him being God of God, light of light, very God of very God. It is most natural to him that he knows what he's talking about and that his proficiency can compete with the greatest scholars in that day because he is the word of God incarnate. And so he's been even sent with this teaching from his father, which brings us to our very next point in verses 16 through 20 on Jesus' authority. Part of the reason why the religious elite asked the question that they did in verse 15 uh, was to insinuate that Jesus hadn't learned in their institutions, and so what he's teaching is all from himself. Okay, what they want to tell the people around them is he's just making it all up, right? He has no authority. It's all made up. He, there, there is, he, he has no consensus uh, because it's not grounded in any real authority. In modern day parlance, uh, what the Jews would be saying here, this question would insinuate that uh, Jesus is somewhat of a conspiracy theorist, what we would also know as a flat earther of of sorts. Uh, They think and they want to tell everybody uh, and tell, tell everybody this and ask this question to prove that Jesus is all out on a limb with what he's talking about. What I want us to do is I want us to walk through this next set of verses Now, to see how Jesus uses his authority, I see four features of Jesus' authority here. Firstly, we see that he highlights the authenticity of his authority. He highlights the authenticity of his authority. Verse 16, 
Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. That is to say, he's not like the religious elite will say about him. He's not just out on a limb doing his own thing. His content isn't his own. It originates with his father. So he appeals to the authority of the one who sent him. Uh, In other words, if the one who sent him is his father, and his father is God above all, blessed forever, amen, Romans 1, then he needs nothing more to appeal to, uh, which is to say there is nothing greater to appeal to. He does not need the consensus of the rabbis before him to confirm his teaching. Uh, He stands upon the authority of his father in everything that's been revealed. Uh, This, by the way, is in line with a parallel passage, Matthew chapter 7, verse 29. It says that he was teaching them, this is directly after the Sermon on the Mount, he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. That is, his authority is given by his father who sent him and commissioned him. So he highlights the authenticity of his authority. Secondly, he teaches how to discern his authority. He teaches how to discern his authority. What's in view is this question, how do you know, or how can you be sensitive to know whether the teaching you hear is from the Father? That's what's in view in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In other words, when we know him, and when we, when we love him, we'll also seek to know and love his word and his will. There is no true knowledge of God in the way that we're supposed to know him without love for him. Let me say that again. There is no true knowledge of God in the way that he is supposed to be known without love for him. Uh, Paul says this all over the place in the New Testament. Uh, Think of 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, If I'm able to speak the tongues of men and angels, if I'm able to tell mountains to move, if I'm able to do all these things, but have not love, I'm nothing. Uh, Paul writes to uh, Pastor Titus in uh, the island of Crete. Uh, Titus 1, verse 1. He's writing, For the sake of God's elect... And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. You cannot have knowledge without godliness. You cannot have the knowledge of God the way that he is supposed to be known without love. It's the only way to know God, the way that he's supposed to be known. So how are you going to know of Jesus' authority, the origins of Jesus' authority? Uh, Well, arguments certainly help. Right? We were speaking in the uh, high school uh, Christian ed class this morning about uh, an apologist, Frank Turek, a very intelligent person um, uh, in, in his own right. He gives very powerful arguments for uh, the existence of God, uh, the goodness of God, everything like that. Arguments certainly help, right? but ultimately it's the Spirit of God who changes our hearts. Spirit of God who changes our hearts to love what he loves and to love what glorifies God. And it works the other way too, if you look at the rest of the verse. How can you know or how can you be sensitive to know that the teaching that you hear is from the Father? Verse 18, the very next verse, I'm sorry. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. That's how you will know that 
The teaching is not from the Father. That is, their authenticity is found within themselves in some way or another. Uh, they scream out glory to man. I just heard a, uh, uh, a, a thing coming here uh, on a podcast that I was listening to that the Heaven's Gate cult leader, whose name is escaping me right, uh, right now, uh, says that, you know, Jesus, the, the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor, uh, but it says love your neighbor as yourself. And so what the Heaven's Gate cult leader uh, said is that, oh no, it's actually three commandments because it's as yourself, right? right? And so that means that the first commandment is love yourself. What else is that than seeking the glory of himself? What else is that than this man teaching other people how to glory in ourselves? That's how you know a surefire way that this teaching is definitely not from the Father when it seeks to glorify yourself. Rather, the person who loves God, who will be able to know the will of God, who will be able to love the will of God, will be able to know by his changed heart that this is the will of God. The one who speaks upon his own authority seeks his own glory. That's how you know that the teachings are from God and not from God. The rest of the verse, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no, no falsehood. So he teaches how to discern his own authority. Thirdly, he appeals to the grounds of his authority. He appeals to the grounds of his authority. What are the grounds of his authority? Uh, God the Father is, as he's revealed in his word, which is why he appeals to Moses. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? The scriptures being the father's revelation of himself and his, and his character are the grounds of his authority, and so he appeals to them as the grounds of his authority. And fourthly, he employs the use of his authority. He employs the use of his authority. Uh, look at the rest of verse 19. He asks, why do you seek to kill me? Why do you seek to kill me? He asked this because uh, since 5 verse 18, the religious leaders sought to kill him back then, if you remember that. And what he's doing is he's asking the question to show their inability and un- unwillingness to be in keeping with the word of God, which they profess to believe in. Okay? And the crowd, which I think is a different group uh, here, chimes in and says, uh, you have a demon. Uh, there's a reason why they're, they're, they're saying that, uh, because uh, there's an insinuation here of the use of his mental faculties. Just about every demon possession that is found in the New Testament, the demon robs the person of their mental faculties, and that's why they say this here. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Evidently, they're unaware of the extent by which their, the hatred of the religious leaders uh, is, is out for Jesus. Uh, but he does this with his authority to show us something. He tells us, he, he does this, he appeals uh, to and employs the use of his authority to show us something. That is, every single time that you are outwardly facing for the cause of Christ, every single time that you live uh, for the cause of Christ to those in your vicinity, you carry about a message that's not native to you. And so, you do not speak, nor do you act upon your own authority. Whenever that it is that you defend the faith, whenever it is that you share the gospel with someone, whenever it is that you live the gospel in front of someone else, whenever you evangelize or do anything that is in line with the Christian life, you are in that instance a messenger of the King of Kings, which is to say that it's an all-encompassing uh, 
sort of life. It's an entirely different worldview that we take. We're messengers of the king of kings. You hold out to them a word. You hold out to them. You display to them a life that is not natively yours. It's not yours to manipulate, nor is is it yours to only tell one side of or even live one side of. We're either faithful with all of it or we're, we're faithful with none of it. We can see Jesus' authority with all this and what it calls us to. And our last point this evening leads us to our last point this evening on Jesus' consistency, his consistency. And what Jesus is doing with this last point on his, his consistency is that he is confronting the religious leaders, uh, namely, he's confronting their selective use of the law, their selective application of the law, and he's pointing out that their inconsistencies with their application of the law are part of what makes them so odious in the sight of God and man. Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses uh, may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Uh, What Jesus is referring to here is the insistence of the religious class uh, upon the level of importance that's ascribed to one part of the law of God over against a miracle, an undisputed miracle, on the other hand, that demonstrated a healing and a completeness uh, that, is, that really personifies everything that the law points to. In, in other words, the law says don't do this or, or do this. Um, and if you go against the law, you're going to be on whole. That's what uh, the, the, the law says. Jesus then goes and he makes someone whole who was unwhole, the guy, the, uh, the, the invalid at the, the pool of Bethesda, chapter 5, And what happens is that their focus is instead on staying away from the externals of what could possibly make that guy unwhole again. You can't pick up your mat. It's the Sabbath. By the way, nowhere is that specified in in, in the law of God, right? But they don't care about the the, the heart. They care about the externals. So their focus is is, is, is about the externals of what might make that person unwhole again. They prefer the letter of the law with all of its warnings, with all of its threatenings, all of its forbiddings over the signs of the gospel. And here we see Jesus, he uses this to demonstrate that they're a lot more worried about rote compliance to really their interpretation of the law than what the law leads someone to. So Jesus asks this this question uh, to challenge them uh, on, on what happens when how they interpret the law is at odds with another way that they interpret the law. Jesus does this to show that they've really put themselves in a pickle. And now they logically have two options. Either abandon that method of interpretation entirely, which is to say to them, repent of your religiosity, uh, or dig in your heels a little bit more. Maybe use your position of religiosity to create more elaborate method of interpretation. And what do authoritarians always do? Uh, authoritarians, you can pretty much bank 
uh, on them to act this way. What they're going to do is they're going to heap more elaboration upon more elaboration, no matter how inconsistent it is, and it still persists to this very day. What Jesus is saying is that they are inconsistently applying the law of God and entirely overlooking the wholeness that he offers all to save their position. So what Jesus challenges them to is a consistency that goes beyond the externals. It's a consistency that certainly involves the externals, uh, but it's seated firstly in the heart. He challenges them to a consistency that takes into full account everything that's intended for the people of God uh, inward first and then outward. And so similarly, as God says to Samuel, you remember when Samuel says, go anoint David, he says this in verse 24, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That is, he challenges them to be consistent on the inside and let that consistency grow outward. And one of the things that, that's amazing to me here about this passage is that the Lord Jesus, even knowing the hearts of the people who he's reprimanding here in this very passage, he still petitions them to honor the truth. Still, he holds out the gospel to them in spite of all of their animosity against him. In other words, there's, there's late in, in verse uh, 24 the idea that they should see things the way that God sees them, in truth and in integrity. Uh, Calvin John Calvin says that basically their judgment will never be right. Insofar as, as, as Jesus tells them to judge not by appearances, the Greek word is optics, quite literally. Don't judge by optics, but judge with right judgment. Calvin says they're never going to be able to do this. Why? Well, maybe, I don't know, they can probably demonstrate that his teaching is objectively wrong. No, that's not, that's not how they're going to do things. Are, 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 they, are they going to disagree with him? Are they uh, going to be able to, to, to judge rightly in, in the sense that they can actually show that this miracle didn't happen? No, no. That's not how they are unable to judge rightly. They can't judge with right judgment simply because they hate him so much. That's why. It all comes down to that. Their judgment, therefore, will never be right. It fits with Romans 1. That people suppress the truth about God uh, by their unrighteousness. Even though what can be made known about God is plain to them, they hold down the truth about God, uh, not by their counter-arguments, uh, but by their wickedness. That's how they hold, they suppress the truth about God. In reality, there is no argument against God. There is no argument against the things of God. There's only preferences that take you away from the things of God. And here, Jesus is confronting the religious elite for their inflation of themselves, their supplanting of the things of God for themselves. And so we can stop here and pick up in part two in the next sermon. We've seen tonight that in the middle of the Feast of Booths, Jesus powerfully confronts the religious elite, and he sets himself out as the real representative of God to the world. I have a couple of applications tonight from the passage as we close. Uh, firstly, brothers and sisters, uh, think of your life uh, think of your life in Christ as that which is lived upon the authority of another. Think of your life in Christ as that which is lived upon the authority of another. Uh, this passage implicitly and explicitly states the beauty of Jesus' reliance upon the Father. Take a look at the passage again. Verse 15, he never studied. Verse 16, my teaching is his who sent me. Verse 17, you'll know that my teaching is from God if your will is to do God's will. 
Verse 18, the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus says these things to show us something of what the Christian life is to look like, okay? He's saying this to show us what the Christian life is to look like post-resurrection. That is to say, essentially the same words as the Heidelberg Catechism, that you are not your own, but you belong to Jesus Christ. Uh, In other words, you're under the authority of another. You're not under the authority of yourself. So when we operate under our own authority, what what ends up happening? Uh, Whatever ends up happening, it's to your hurt. Uh, Whatever ends up happening, if you operate upon your authority, it's to the hurt of others. And what ends up happening when you operate upon the authority of yourself, it's to the hurt of the church. So for example, no, it's not right for the people of God to be dishonest workers. Uh, No, it's not right that the people of God be cruel to each other. No, it's not right for the people of God to be careless uh, to one another. It's not right for the people of God to complain and be discontent. It's not right for the people of God to live ungodly lives or to live lives dictated pretty much by our culture around us, media, social media. It's not right to do all these things. It's not right to live like this. Why? Because we are under the authority of another, namely that of the Lord Jesus. So we have him as our guide in this age, as we live under his authority, but also keep in mind, not only do we have him as our guide, it means that we have him as our master and our forerunner as well. Since we're under the authority of Christ, that means that we're not under the authority of sin. In other words, because we belong to him body and soul, he ultimately has the say as to what happens to our bodies and our souls. We are under the authority of Christ. And you know what is in store for you, right? A blessed hope, uh, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, It's to bring you into his glorious kingdom, both body and soul. It's to bring you both body and soul into all the promises that he's won for you in this age and that which is to come. So think of your life as that which is lived upon the authority of Christ and not your own. Secondly, don't put all your stock in appearances. Don't put all of your stock in appearances. Verse 24. Don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That is to say, don't take what you can merely verify by your senses and by your experiences and treat them as ultimate. Uh, The Bible is filled with tons of stories uh, seeming to go one way, and then God uh, intervenes to make it go a totally different way. Uh, Think of Joseph Uh, being sold into slavery. Think of the Israelites in Egypt. Uh, Think of Jonah in the mouth of the fish, not to mention the crucifixion of our Lord. In in, in all these uh, these, these stories, this passage here, in this very passage here, uh, when Jesus is saying, don't judge by appearances, judge with right judgment, what is he talking about? He's talking about the religious elite's capacity to look the part, but not actually be the part. But all, all, these, all these passages, all, all, these, uh, all these stories here, these all have appearances, but when you slow down and you consider the things that God is doing, uh, the things that God is saying within them, you realize that they turn out way different from the way that, that uh, things we thought were going to go. 
In other words, brothers and sisters, you may have had a horrible week. You may have had a terrible week. You may be looking into a week where you see nothing but bleakness and blackness in front of you. You see nothing but darkness in front of you. That's all that you can verify is that I'm looking forward to a week that I don't want to go into. You might be struggling with a sin that you're beating yourself up over because you've been struggling with it for years. You might be facing problems that make you hate getting out of bed in the morning. I know you do because I do as well. But if we're under the authority of Christ, that doesn't mean that we're going to escape pain. It means that we don't feel it for no reason. It's, not, it's incumbent upon us not to treat appearances as ultimate, but to treat whatever he's doing with us as ultimate. And the freedom is in, in this is that most of the time we have no idea what he's doing, but we know that he's doing something. So don't put all your stock in appearances. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank